Let's read our second Bible reading for tonight. Uh, It's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 15. Uh, And on most of our pew Bibles, it would be page 1302. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In numbers, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, friends, uh, we will be considering this uh, big question tonight. There is an outline so that you might find that helpful uh, as we consider this uh, question. Uh, But also what we'll be doing tonight, as we've been doing in this series, is we'll be taking question time. So after this uh, talk, uh, we'll be taking uh, perhaps about two questions or so. So if you want to ask a question, text it to that number up there, and Pete will ask those questions uh, after this talk. Uh, But as we consider, it is a big topic, a difficult topic, in fact, uh, thinking through this topic this past week. Uh, So let's ask God for his help once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider the reality of what hell is like and uh, the future that it might be for many, we pray, Lord, that uh, as we consider this, you help us to consider with uh, a rightful heart, a fearful uh, attitude towards you as a God of all creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question tonight is, Dear God, why do you send people to hell? How do you, God, proclaim yourself to be a good God, a kind God, a generous God, but yet you create a place called hell? And you, in fact, send people to hell. How can you still be good? Why can't you, God, accept me as I am? Take me as I am. And God, if you are so loving, why don't you just forgive everyone so that hell will be empty, heaven will be full? Now, I wonder whether you've thought about these questions before. I wonder whether you've asked these questions before. You see, for many people, the idea that God judges and punishes and condemns people to an eternity of torment is hugely offensive. It sounds so offensive. How dare you, God, do that to anyone? 
Now, what are we to make of this? Well, of course, it depends on what your notion of hell is like. If hell in your mind is the image of devils with horns holding these pitchforks, prodding at people, dancing around a burning cauldron and, and singing Stairway to Heaven, it doesn't sound so bad, does it? It's like a hot party. A very hot party doesn't sound so bad. But you see, if you understand hell the way the Bible describes hell, then that image is chilling, distressing, despairing, agonizing, horrifying, terrifying. That's, that's the extent of my adjectives, but it's terrible in the Bible. Now, as we consider what hell is like, we consider some of the words of Jesus. Now, we know Jesus to be meek and mild, the one who speaks of love and compassion and mercy. But I wonder if you knew this. The word hell, mentioned in the New Testament 14 times, 12 of those times are found on the lips of Jesus. Here's your fire and brimstone preacher. And how did Jesus describe hell? Well, he describes hell as a place where the flames are never quenched where the worms they never die they'll continue to gnaw at you but they'll never die they'll never get full and there it's a place of gnashing of teeth agonizing torment that goes on and on and on and just like in the first bible reading it's a place you want to escape and avoid at all costs even if it means gouging out your eyes so that you'll escape the fires of hell of course, the language in that first Bible reading is, is hyperbole. You don't physically gouge out your eye, but he's telling us, he's, Jesus is giving us a sense, this is serious stuff. Hell is for real. You do not want to end up in that place. Now, in thinking about hell this past few weeks and in trying to make sense of it, uh, I read a bit of uh, Jonathan Edwards. He was a Puritan theologian from the 18th century in the US and what he wrote was very helpful he was one time the president of the College of New Jersey which ended up being the uh, Princeton University many of you would know that famous university but that university started off as a place to train ministers many of the universities started as a place to train ministers but anyway Jonathan Edwards in one of his famous sermons he preached on hell uh, one titled sinners in the hands of an angry god this was how he described hell as he tried to make sense of hell from his reading of the bible now in reading this i'll read it uh, in uh, quoted at length it's heart-wrenching it's quite heavy so so let's uh have a look at this he describes it this way consider what it is like to suffer extreme torment forever and ever to suffer it day and night, from one year to another, from one age to another, from 1,000 ages to another, and so adding age to age, thousands to thousands, in pain, in wailing, in lamenting, in groaning, in shrieking, in gnashing your teeth, with your souls full of dreadful grief and amazement, with your bodies and every member full of racking torture, without any possibility of getting ease without any possibility of moving god to pity by your cries without any possibility of hiding yourselves from him without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain 
without any possibility of obtaining any matter of mitigation or help or change for the better. Now, he, he, he spoke at length on hell. That's only part of that sermon. But reading that doesn't make you uncomfortable just thinking about what hell is like. It goes on forever and ever. I wonder whether reading that just weighs heavy on your heart. But he, he didn't stop there. He continues. I'll, I'll show you a bit more about what he, what he said. He, he goes on. After you shall have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and the stars in your dolorous groans and lamentations without rest day and night or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies, which shall have been burning all this while in these glowing flames, shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through eternity, which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been passed. Now, I wonder what you're, you're feeling after hearing that. He went on at length speaking about hell. I mean, it was breathtaking. Just, you need to take a break just hearing about his description of hell. You see, in hell, even if you want to die, you want it all to end. You want to commit suicide. You can't. You can't end it at all. That is how terrifying hell is. You'll always be under the wrath of God. Such is the agony, the torture of this godless eternity. And so when we speak of hell, when any Christian speaks of hell, we never speak of it in joy, in any desire of, of celebrating it. We speak only with a heavy heart. If you think about this, this is the reality for many, as the Bible tells us. And so, when you understand hell that way, you can see why anyone would take offense at God. How dare you, God, send anyone to such a wretched place? How dare you, God? And so our question this evening, Dear God, why do you send people to hell? We'll answer this question in three parts. Firstly, why we don't like God sending anyone to hell. Secondly, what, what if we were the judge? What if we took the place of God? How might that be different? And thirdly, why a good God will send people to hell? And so let's consider the answers. First, why we don't like God sending anyone to hell? Well, there are many reasons for this, and here are the common ones. Firstly, it's just unfair. It's unfair for many people. We don't mind the notion of a loving God. That is okay. But a God who judges and punishes, that's a bit harder to swallow. But a God who sends people to hell, now that's just outright unfair, unjust. God, you are not allowed to do that. Now, even some Christians, some who profess to be Christians, think this way. Rob Bell, in a book he wrote, Love Wins, he, he said this. He said, Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years 
with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life. And you see what he's trying to get at. This is just unfair, God. How can you do this? This is not right. Eternal punishment. It's just, it's just not fitting for the crime done in this finite life. Hell is unfair. Our first complaint. Another complaint, another reason. It's not just unfair. It's unloving. You see, when I discipline my kids, I do so out of love. A parent who disciplines does so out of love. And so when the punishment is, well, tonight, because of what you've done or said, you will not have dessert. It's temporary. It's just a one time. It's not like, no more dessert for you, child, for the rest of your life. May your taste buds never, ever taste the sweetness of licking an ice cream, ever. You see, it doesn't make sense. My punishment is just for that one time. Or if the punishment is go to your room for whatever reason. I'm not saying they stay in your, your room for the rest of your life till the day you die. Do not dare come out for the toilet or to brush your teeth. You see, our punishment is temporary. It's just a once-off. That's what a parent does in punishment out of love. But then here, how can a loving God confine people to eternity in hell? Why not just punish temporarily? Well, Rob Bell, that same author, he argues that hell will not last forever. Eternal torment doesn't bring glory to God, but reconciliation will. And so he goes on to say this. He says, given enough time, this is what he thinks. It's not what the Bible says, but it's what he thinks. Given enough time, the love of God will melt every hard heart. And even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. You see, in his mind, that's loving. It's not eternal condemnation. It's only temporary. It's unloving to send anyone to hell forever. That's our second complaint against God. Finally, it's just manipulative. This is just scare tactics from God for everyone, for anyone, for us to believe. We don't like it. It's just unfair. It's unloving. And God is just trying to manipulate us. But now let's turn the tables around, our second part. Let's turn the tables around for a moment. It's always very easy to complain against God, complain about God. In fact, it's very easy to complain about anyone else except ourselves. But now let's turn the tables around for a moment and let's consider whether we would do a better job at being God. Okay, so imagine you are God. I am God. Will we do a better job at being God? Well, how fair would we be? How just would we be? How righteous would we be? Well, some of us might think, well, if I were God, then I'll let everyone into heaven. How will be empty? It's not for real. It will just be empty. Everyone will be in heaven. I mean, that's a nice thought, isn't it? It's so inclusive. Everyone will be there. All will be okay for every single soul one day. But I wonder if anyone actually believes that or would want that, that everyone will be in heaven. If you were God, would you want everyone to be in heaven? You see, if everyone gets to heaven eventually, what that means then is that whatever we do now on earth doesn't ultimately matter. I can lie, 
I can cheat, I can steal, I can kill. It doesn't ultimately matter because no one will hold me to account and I'll get to heaven anyway. But what it also means is that if I allow, if I'm God and I allow everyone to get to heaven, what it also mean is that the likes of Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin, the serial murderers, the rapists, the pedophiles, I have to allow them into heaven as well. Would you do that as God? Would you want to do that as God? Open the doors of your home to such people. I mean, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want any of those people close to my family. And so if I let everyone into heaven, if that is how you would function as God, then it just means that I don't believe in justice or it means that I don't know how to exercise justice. And so, well, we can't let everyone into heaven. If we are God, we won't let everyone into heaven. We must exercise justice. And so we might think, well, the question now becomes, where do I draw the line? Who do I allow in? Who do I keep out? Where do I draw this line? Maybe this line could be whether you're sincere in life. Doesn't matter what you believe, there are thousands of religions out there. Believe it whatever you like, as long as you're sincere, then it's okay, I'll let you in. But if someone is sincere about Satanism, will you allow them in? If someone is sincere about the religion that, that offers child sacrifice, will you be okay in letting them in? Well, that line doesn't really work now, the line of sincerity. Let's change the line. Let's say now the line is, as long as you are true to yourself. That's the line, if, as long as you're true to yourself. But even so, what that will mean is that there will be people who are not true to themselves. And so you're being exclusive there. Some will get in, some you'll keep out. And so the question now becomes, will your standard, that line that standard of fairness and justice be any more fair or just than God's standard? What do you think? Will you do a better job at being God than God? Well, the reality is that you can't. I can't. And that's because on one level, our standard of morality, our standard of right and wrong, are nowhere near as high or as perfect as God's standard. But then on another level, we cannot see into the hearts of people like God can. You see, on the surface, we can pretend, we can fool those around us, but God sees into our hearts. You see, our judgment of others is always skewed, is always biased, isn't it? We never see what's really in the hearts of people. And so, if God is judge, he is different. He sees into our hearts. If we are judge, will be far less just, far less fair than God. And so, well, let's, that's the first problem. We, we can't be more just or fair than God. Well, maybe we can be more loving than God then. Maybe we'll do a better job than God at being loving. I won't punish for all eternity. I'll only punish for a time. I'll keep hell temporary, hoping that it'll rehabilitate those in hell so that they can end up in heaven eventually. Punishment will only be temporary. But then you have to consider, what if the likes of Hitler remains evil forever? In fact, 
gets more evil, doesn't learn from his mistakes, continues in his evil ways in hell, would you then allow him into your home with your family? What do you think? Or if the murderers, the rapists, the pedophiles continue in their wicked ways, would you then allow them into your home? Well, of course not. You see, that's why hell is not temporary. It continues. The wickedness and evil continues. You know, wouldn't you want to contain that evil forever, enclose it, contain it, keep it separate from all that is good and joyful and peaceful and true? Wouldn't you want that? to contain it forever and that is what god is doing you see the bible doesn't speak of hell as rehabilitative rather it is the just judgment of god on all evil it is god's way of containing evil forever separate from all that is good where god is but then some people ask well don't people change in hell don't don't people you know once they get to hell they they change they repent but you see, there's no evidence that that might be possible at all. It won't be the way people will be in hell. It's not like people, when they get to hell, they'll turn over a new leaf. It's not like when people get to hell, they'll, they'll be filled with repentance. They want to change. Okay, God, you're real. I'm, I'm in hell now. I know you're for real, and I am sorry. I'll repent. I'll believe you now. Take me to heaven now. People won't be saying that. It's not how it will be for those in hell. And that's what we read in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. We read this. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. You see, the way you move into hell, the way you were on earth, you continue in that way in hell. The way you were on earth, um, as holy and righteous, that's how you'll be in heaven. So if you're vile and evil here, nothing's going to change. You'll continue in that way. In fact, it will increase. And one theologian, Don Carson, he puts it this way. He says, hell is filled with people who don't want to be there, but still don't want to bend their knee. And so those in hell will continue in evilness. Hitler will become more Hitler-like. Stalin will become more Stalin-like. And they'll continue to despise the cross. They'll continue to hate God for all eternity. People don't turn over a new leaf in hell if they did not do so already on earth. And that's why in one of the stories that Jesus told, Jesus is trying to show us that people don't change in hell. It's a story about the rich man and Lazarus. Many of you may have heard of that story before. There's a rich man. He was proud selfish couldn't care less for the the struggling for the poor and so there was this poor man lazarus outside couldn't care less for him in the end they died both of them died lazarus went up to heaven the rich man went down to hell and he was in agony in the fires of hell no sign of repentance did not cry out to god take me to heaven now i want to go there i don't want to be here Instead, he still continued in his, in his selfish ways. He expected Lazarus to come and serve him as his water boy. You see, his soul was self-absorbed, self-centered, spiritually blind on earth, and he remains that way in hell. And so let those who do wrong, as we saw in that verse, continue to do wrong still. 
And so you can't temporarily contain evil. It is not loving. You can't unleash evil if they continue to be evil. That's why hell is eternal. And so what is loving is that you keep it away forever. But now what about that third complaint? It's manipulative for God to speak of hell, for anyone to speak of hell. Well, you see, there's a flaw in that way of thinking. It's only manipulative if it's not true. But if it is true, then it's the most loving thing to do, to warn others of the serious danger of hell. You know, if, if I know that there is danger ahead, but I withhold that information from you, that's unkind. That's unloving, isn't it? And if the danger is as serious as this eternity of torment, then that is grossly unloving to not warn anyone about it. It's a bit like when I cross the road with my kids, I tell them clearly, every time we cross the road, make sure you look at the road, check out for the cars. Look left, look right, look left, look right. When they were younger, they were expected to hold our hands to cross the road. Never go off on your own, never run off. Don't cross. It's dangerous crossing a road. You could be run over by the car. It could crush your bones. It will squash you underneath its tires. It will splatter your brains over its windscreen, and you will die. We'll warn it. We're not so graphic. But you can say that's manipulative, you know, using scare tactics to scare your own kids. But it's only manipulative if it's not true. Cars are dangerous. You put a car and a kid together, the car wins every time. And so it's loving to warn my kids of that danger. The more graphic I am, the more careful they'll be. And so in one sense, the description we get in the Bible, it is graphic, but it is that loving warning, far from being manipulative, a warning out of love. That is what it is. And so how do we go at being judged? Well, we'll fail miserably. How will we go at being God? We will fail we are not just like God. We are not righteous like God. We are nowhere near loving like God. And in the end, the reality is that we are not God. And more than that, you wouldn't want me to be your judge, would you? Nor would I want you to be my judge. So that's the second part of this answer. But now let's consider our last section. Why a good God will send people to hell? Now, as we speak of this, as we reflect on this, we do so with a heavy heart because we've heard what hell is like already. So why will a good God send people to hell? Well, firstly, it is because it is exactly what a just and fair and righteous creator God would do. You see, when we complain to God, how dare you, God, a good God, send people to hell? It is because we fail to understand two things, at least two things, but two big things. Firstly, we have a warped view of the holiness of God. We don't think God is really that good, that holy, that perfect. You see, God is perfectly holy, and he cannot tolerate even the slightest hint of wickedness and evilness or rebellion. He will not tolerate that. That is the holiness of God. Cannot be near any rebellion, any sin. We fail to understand that. Secondly, it's because we have a warped view of ourselves, our own depravity. We like to think of ourselves more highly than we should. But in the Bible, God puts it quite clear. 
and quite plainly for us. You see, when we fail, even in the slightest way morally, we're not just breaking some arbitrary law that God decided this is what, what you are to do, this is how you are to live, but when we break even the smallest law, smallest command of God, we're actually breaking our relationship with God. We're actually saying to God, we don't need you to tell us what to do. I, I can live life my own way. And in doing so, we've set ourselves up as God's enemy and rival. And God will not tolerate that. And so when we complain, why do you send people to hell? It's because we fail to understand the holiness of God and our own depravity. And so what is a just and fair God to do with rebels who despise him? Well, the punishment is fitting. It is hell. It must be. You know, we like to think that we're in God's good books. You know, when we're born, we're in God's good books. Or at least we're neutral, that God maybe somehow owes us something. But the reality is that in the, the revelation from what we hear from the Bible is that we're all down here. Our default position is that we don't deserve anything from God. Where we are headed, our destiny is hell. If we grasp the unsurpassing holiness of God, if we grasp our depravity, our default position is down here. None of us deserves heaven. And so if God is perfectly just and fair, how is what all of us gets? How is what all of us gets? Now, you might not know this or might not be aware of this, but the plain words of the Bible is that hell is what we all deserve. You see, if for our whole lives we turn our backs on God, ignore him, despise him, crucify his son, we say to God, I'll live my way, I don't want you in my life. Now, what will God do in the end? If we continue to say that our whole life, I don't want you in my life, I'll live life my way. Well, God, in the end, will grant us what we ask for. And that is what hell ultimately is. God giving us what we ask for. He will stay away, and he will stay away for all eternity. And we'll spend a godless eternity in torment, away from all that is good and pure and beautiful and peaceful. Now, now many of you may have heard of C.S. Lewis, the great author. He was trying to make sense of this difficult topic as well, trying to make sense of, of hell. And in the end, very, very smart man, he said this. He said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done to God, or those whom God in the end says, thy will be done and that are in all that are in hell choose it and so if we don't want god's will be done god will let us uh, do our will and that is we'll get what we deserve what we ask for and so in the end how is because god is granting what we ask for and god will stay away forever now we might not like it but sending people to hell is precisely what a righteous and just God would do. But of course the story doesn't end there. We know that God is also loving. God is loving. And so what has this loving God done? Well, he's looked upon our hopeless situation. Our destiny, it is all hopeless. None of us can escape the clutches of hell. 
by our own efforts, our reasoning, our power, we cannot escape. And so what has this loving God done? Well, in his son, he condescended to our level. In his son, Jesus Christ, he's come down as a human being. To do what? To bear the punishment we deserve. You see, our default position is down here. He's come down to bear that punishment, to experience hell on our behalf and to make us clean and fitting for heaven. That is what God has done. And in doing that, God is showing his love and his justice at the very same time. That is what the loving God has done. And so if you think about that, if anything is unfair, it's not that God sends people to hell. That is what we all deserve. What's unfair, in a sense, is that Jesus should experience hell in our place when he died on the cross. And so now, when anyone wants to say, God, this is unfair, well, in one sense, what's fair is that you should go to hell. What's unfair is that one, his own son, should experience hell on our behalf. And because of him, there is now an escape from hell, an escape where we can get to heaven by trusting in the Saviour God has provided. And so if anyone in the end misses out on heaven, it's not so much that God has a problem with them. It's more so that they have a problem with God. They don't want to get to heaven on God's terms in trusting in the only saviour there is who experienced hell for them. And so now our question, dear God, why do you send people to hell? When we think about this, I don't like talking about this topic. I don't like the fact that hell exists because we know the terror and the horror of it. I, like, I don't like the thought of thinking about it or even imagining the agony, the torment that remains destiny for so many people. Many people you know, many people I know. And so when we ask this question again, dear God, why do you send people to hell? Well, a good God sends people to hell because that is him exercising justice, making all things right one day. But that is also God granting people what they ultimately ask for, eternal separation from God, and God one day will stay away forever. But of course, this good God has provided a way out. Trust in the Saviour he has sent for our escape and for our salvation. And we'll be among those, like in that C.S. Lewis quote, we'll be among those who say to God, Thy will be done. I will trust in your Saviour. I don't know how this will work. I'll trust in him. You say you'll save me. I'll trust in him. Thy will be done and we'll be safe. Or if we don't say his will be done, he'll turn around and say to us, well, your will be done and there will be terror and gnashing of teeth because God will be away. And so in the end, it comes down to us, comes down to you. What will you do knowing the reality of this terrifying warning? What will you do? We've asked the question, we know the answer, but what will you do? Cling on to the only saviour there is for this escape or face God yourself? Well, I'm going to pray and I'll pray that you'll consider that deeply. It is a terrifying thing, but pray that you will turn and cling on to this only saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and in your love you have given us this clear warning that there is this terrifying hell that awaits those who want it. 
those who want a life without you. And we pray, Lord, that you'll be working in all our hearts to cling on to the only saviour there is who experienced hell on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is now. That was all my fault. Uh, the Muso's leap because I'm holding Muso mic. Uh, we had um, we had lots and lots and lots of excellent questions, and a couple that came in at the end. So um, we're not going to be able to get those ones up on the slides, I don't think. Uh, so it'd be great for us to keep talking about this. Talk to John, particularly, but talk to one another about the questions you have. Uh, we will ask some though. Uh, so Ben, do you want to put the first one up? Uh, so a related question, something you didn't speak about. Uh, where did the idea of purgatory come from? You might have to explain what that idea is. Uh, is there any biblical evidence for it? Yeah. So the idea of purgatory, it's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And it really comes from only the few books that is not biblical, the Apocrypha. And so it's not, there's no biblical evidence for it that there is a second chance. So purgatory is the idea where there is a second chance where the living can still pay penance for you. So they'll do things so that you can escape uh, purgatory into heaven. It's a second chance realm. But there's no, really no biblical evidence for it. So the biblical evidence says once you die, there is judgment, there is heaven, or there is hell. Those who want heaven, trust in Jesus. Those who don't want Jesus, don't want to trust in God, well, it's really God granting you what you want, and that is eternal separation from God. Okay, so that this life is the decision life. There's no right. second life where you work it off. Okay, second question, Ben, it's longer. It'll come across two slides. Given the praise and joy expressed in places like Revelation 19, verse 1 to 5, in response to God's judgment, and also the requests for judgment in places like Revelation chapter 6, is it right to say we shouldn't have joy uh, about hell and God's judgment? And next slide. Is it... Uh, go again, sorry, Ben. Yep. Is it better to say there's tension between uh, longing and joy at judgment... Uh, and our mourning over those who will experience judgment. So, yeah. um, so you said uh, we don't rejoice mm. over hell. And so the question is, given there are some, it seems, examples of celebrating God's justice mm. and the justice that includes hell in the Bible, are we better off to say there is a tension between us mm. mourning uh, those we love who uh, go to hell and still mm. rejoicing in the judgment of God? Yeah, so I think... Um uh, it's a very good question because we live in a time of now but not yet. In a sense, we rejoice that there will be justice one day. God will make it all right one day. It will be perfect. Whatever God's judgment, it will be right and good, and we can rejoice in that. But in a sense, we can't delight in even our enemies experiencing eternal torment. You know, you just can't come around to, to, to delight in the, the torment, the suffering, the wrath of God they'll experience for all eternity. So that's, in a sense, what I was trying to say, that we don't speak with this with great pride and uh, joy. You know, people are going to hell, let's rejoice in that. No, no, it, it, it can't be. In a sense, the desire of all Christians is that we don't want anyone to go to hell. We know that it's right and it'll, it'll be a right time and a place and people will. But in a sense, we don't want that, do we? Because the terror and the torment and agony is so terrifying. Um, so, in a sense, it is a tension, but we don't speak of hell, in a sense, with smugness and with pride that I'm better because I'm going to heaven. Yeah. Thank you. There's a, a third question coming up. Uh, is God present in hell 
did he create its very tormenting nature and related? Also, or instead, I guess, does Satan rule over hell and punish people, or is he suffering in hell like others? Yeah, very good question. So, so in a sense, how God is separate in that um, you'll have an existence away from the goodness of God, but you'll always be under the wrath of God in hell. So God is not present in the same way that he is in heaven, where there is full of joy and peace and truth and all of that. But those in hell will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. So God did create it, and he did create its, its punishment. It, it is under God's power and jurisdiction. Um, Satan in hell, he won't be ruling. He'll be suffering like everyone else. He'll be punished like everyone else. So it's not like uh, what we see in movies where he has the power and he's calling the shots in hell. No, they'll all be under the wrath of God. So God is separate in the sense that there is no goodness that they'll experience in hell that will be enjoyed in heaven. So he's present only in judgment, not in his goodness. Now, um, we have a little bit longer. We don't have any more questions on the slide, but I know there's a few others that came in, so I'm going to ask them to you if you stay there. Sure. Um, a, a really uh, difficult question, I think, is the question of babies... Uh, infants. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've given thought to this, yeah. Um, but yeah, what, what, what's your thinking? What do you mm. see the Bible say? Or what do you see the Bible not say yeah. in respect to um, babies and infants when mm. it comes to this? Yeah, so, so in, in making any judgment on any soul, in a sense, I can't say anything about any one of you, even though I'm even though if I'm completely convinced that you are a believer, in a sense, it's not up to me to judge you. You're going to be in heaven with me. That is up to God. In a sense, that's the same way I would answer children, infants, so die in infancy. The judgment lies with God, and I can trust that God is a righteous, just God. I'm not calling the shots on what will happen with infants. I want them all to be safe. It's up to God. But what we do know from the Bible is that uh, those... Um, it doesn't speak so much about infants, but those who do respond in faith, they are saved with certainty. Um, it does talk about the elect, so those who God has, uh, do, those whom God has chosen, they will be saved. Whoever, whoever they are, that's in God's mind, not my mind. So I always defer judgment to God. Infants, I don't know, I can't say. Uh, I want the infant to be saved, but God is judge. I defer to him. He will be righteous and just in the end. Um, in a sense, that's all you can say. You can't um, uh, give a judgment. This person's saved, this person's not saved. That's not our place. Last question to paraphrase one that came in. Can a Christian, John, go to hell? Um, why, why not? Yeah. Well, if you're a Christian, you're saying that I depend on this only saviour there is to save me and help me escape from the flames of hell. So if you're a genuine Christian, you can't be in hell. You'll be in heaven with God because you're showing your dependence in God and his solution for saving you, and that is his son, Jesus. Thanks, John. Thank Thanks for being willing to answer questions on the spot as well. As we said, be, this is a good night for deep conversations, I suspect, and so it'll be particularly good to, if you've got questions, tonight is the night to talk to others about them, not to just push them aside. Uh, certainly don't treat them as trivial, um, but also don't be afraid to ask and speak. So we're going to sing our final song. And